You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I've always had a weird, negative, knee-jerk reaction to the word compersion. It's a perfectly useful word. It's just that some people dislike certain words. Like some people don't like the word moist. Drives some people crazy. I, I think it's kind of similar to the way some people dislike certain spices. Lots of people hate cilantro. They don't want that shit in their mouths. I don't want compersion in my ears. Okay, okay. Encyclopedia Britannica. I get it. People who dislike cilantro have, quote, a variation in a group of olfactory receptor genes that allows them to strongly perceive the soapy-flavored aldehydes in cilantro leaves. Cilantro hate is genetic. I get it. But I don't think anyone has looked into whether there's a genetic reason why some people hate the word moist or nipple or panties or compersion. So a genetic cause for this phenomenon can't be ruled out. But as a fan of the English language, I got to say, I got to admit, compersion, it's a useful word. You may have heard compersion described as the opposite of jealousy, but when broadly defined, an empathetic state of happiness or joy experienced when another individual experiences happiness or joy, it's really more accurate to describe compersion as the opposite of schadenfreude. Compersion, happiness at the happiness of others. Schadenfreude, happiness at the misfortune of others. It's a German word. The French gave us menage a trois and tongue kissing. The Germans gave us schadenfreude and sauerkraut. Not suggesting we make any inferences about national character here, but it is kind of hard to resist. Now, when polyamorous people use compersion, and it may have been a polyamorous person who first coined the term, it was certainly polyamorous people who popularized it. When polyamorous people use the term, it does mean the opposite of jealousy. It's the feeling of joy you get when your romantic partner finds joy in another romantic partner. Been there felt that. It's a good feeling, needed its own word, just wish they'd come up with something that didn't sound like cilantro tastes. Anyway, I've been thinking we may need a third definition of compersion, a sort of post-COVID-19 pandemic definition of compersion, specifically about the joy we introverts are going to feel when all you extroverts we've been locked up at home with for the last year and change can leave the fucking house again. I am an introvert. Staying home for me was easy. It's going out for me that's always been hard. And I want all the extroverts out there to know once you guys can go out again, that includes you, Terry, I'm going to feel a new and different kind of compersion. I am going to take joy in the joy you take going out, but I'm going to enjoy that joy of mine at home. Because I don't want to talk to people in bars or shake hands or, God forbid, have to hug a stranger or at least I thought I didn't, but after reading Markham Hyde's piece in the New York Times over the weekend about germs and bacteria and how being exposed to other people's germs and bacteria is good for us, I don't know. In his piece in the opinion section, Can We Learn to Live with Germs Again?, Hyde argues that our health may depend on returning to lifestyles, his term, lifestyles, that regularly exposed us to other people's bacteria, their microbiome. Shaking hands, hugging, licking doorknobs, our microbiomes, the trillions of bacteria living in our guts and all over our skin and in our lungs and our joints and maybe even our brains, 
their health and our health may depend on constant exposure and re-exposure to other people's microbiomes. Which means we're going to have to stop wiping everything down, stop overusing antibiotics and start shudder touching strangers again. Introverts like me, introverts who are lucky enough to live with extroverts, we can count on our extroverts to head out there into the world and to bring home the microbes we need to stay healthy. But to be on the safe side, once we're all vaccinated, if we can get there, once we're on the other side of COVID-19, some of us are going to have to err on the side of rimming total strangers in dark and crowded bars again. That was my takeaway from Markham Hyde's piece in the New York Times. Read it yourself draw your own conclusions. All right, coming up on today's show, I speak with Anna Sale from the Death, Sex, and Money podcast. We talk about her new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, and then we talked about hard things together. The first part of the interview is on the Micro Savage Lovecast, and then Anna stuck around to answer some listener questions with me. That's on the Magnum, which you can subscribe to at www.savagelovecast.com. Tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and the amazing Anna Sale. All that coming up today on the Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. So I'm pansexual, and I've told my boyfriend this, but he still thinks that we can have a committed marriage. I think that we could do it. I just wouldn't have any relations with anyone other than my husband. Do you think that's plausible? Do you think that can work? Do you think that we could have kids in a plain old marriage where we're just having sex with each other? Of course it's possible for someone who's pansexual or bisexual to make and honor a monogamous commitment and to be content and happy in that relationship. There are people out there who will tell you that it is biphobic or panphobic to suggest otherwise. I happen to agree with those people. And yet I frequently get calls and I frequently get letters and see stuff floating around the internet and other people's columns from people who identify as pan or bi who posit that it is somehow erasing their pansexuality or their bisexuality or negating it or frustrating it if their monosexual partner demands or expects them to make and honor a monogamous commitment. Seems like we have to pick one of those two things. And you know which one I picked. I picked the former. We have to pick one of those two things. Pan people and bi people can make and honor monogamous commitments and biphobic to suggest or panphobic to suggest otherwise and be perfectly content in sexually exclusive relationships with partners of just one gender. Or pan and bi people need to be allowed to express their pansexuality and bisexuality with other partners and therefore can't make and shouldn't be expected to make monogamous commitments. And it would be oppressive to impose a monogamous commitment or expectation on someone who's bi or pan. Got to pick one. Seems like you're in the latter camp, caller. You wouldn't be calling if you didn't feel on some level that what you're potential future husband and father of your children to be is suggesting wasn't a problem, wasn't impressive, didn't honor or allow you to be the buyer pan person you are. And it may be that you're the kind of buyer pan person who needs to have other partners and shouldn't be making a monogamous commitment. But you know, that's not a cross that buy and pan people have to bear all by themselves. Monosexuals, heterosexuals and homosexuals, We want to fuck other people too. It's not just about gender, this desire for other partners. I can understand why somebody who's bi might be particularly frustrated when they can't be with somebody of the opposite or same sex, depending on who they're in a committed, exclusive relationship with. But that said, 
experiencing monogamy as a struggle or a sacrifice is so common as to almost be universal. Can you do it? Yes, you can. Will you be happy and content with that choice at all times? No, you won't. But that's true of people who are in open relationships and closed relationships. They're all struggles. You have to ask yourself if this struggle is worth it. If, if this is a price of admission that your husband to be insists you pay to be with him, can you pay it and be content? And if the answer is no, then you're going to have to counter his demand with a demand of your own. That if he wants to be with you, you have to be allowed to express who you are sexually in a way that feels authentic and in a way that will make you feel fulfilled. And for you, not for all buyer pan people, but for you, that means you have to be free to have sex with other people. And if he can't allow for that, you won't be content. And if you're not content, you will sabotage the relationship. He wants monogamy, you don't. And if you can't be content, well, then you're just not sexually compatible. And you know that now. You know that before you've made a commitment or gotten married or scrambled your DNA together. And so you need to resolve this now. You need to come to terms about this now. It doesn't mean over the long life of a relationship you can't re renegotiate terms. Most open relationships were closed once upon a time. The existence of all those open relationships proves that these things can be renegotiated and a relationship can survive. But at least going in, at least for the first decade and change, who knows how long, you're going to have to come to an agreement. And if you can't, don't marry this motherfucker. Hi, Dan. Big fan. I'm 25. I live on the East Coast. I have been dating my boyfriend for about a year. He's amazing. Our relationship is great. I really, I love him. The thing is that six months ago, in the middle of the pandemic, he got laid off. It's been awful for him and he's taken it really hard to be unemployed. We're, he's lucky that he can do some consulting work, so it's not a financial issue, but it's more the emotional distress of being unemployed. We've only been together for a year and we're young, so it's not a situation where I'm worried about our joint financials. It's more that I don't know how to support him emotionally through something that feels so out of control to him. It really gets him down. It makes him feel inadequate. And I kind of don't know what to say. The first few months, I would just tell him that I thought that he was amazing and someone was going to realize it soon and he was going to get a job right around the corner. But the more it drags on, the more those things feel like empty words. And I kind of feel at a loss of, of how to support him. Sometimes I even find myself not talking about my job because I don't want him to feel inadequate. And I know that's not good. So anyone who's been through this, I would love the help. It's not the same as, you know, when your spouse gets unemployed, because I think that then you're connected financially. And so it's a, a group thing you're going through. This is really something that's happening to him. And I don't know what to do. Honor his feelings, let him feel his feelings, and then do what you can to distract him. Make dinners, go for bike rides, go do something, have a lot of sex, do something that he feels adequate at. Hopefully he feels adequate when you guys have sex. Be a distraction to him. But you don't want to tell him he can't feel that way or shouldn't feel that way. You don't want to argue with him about what he's feeling right now. And he's feeling what a lot of people are feeling right now. A lot of people lost work in the last year. A lot of people are looking for work now. The jobs are coming back. The economy is coming back. That's great. Those jobs are going to be there. He will find employment and nobody in the future, no employer is going to look at someone who had a period of unemployment during the pandemic and think any less of them 
as a potential hire. I'm sure you've said all these things to your boyfriend. The problem can be when we're reassuring someone that, you know, we tell them they shouldn't feel so bad or they should feel better. We want them to feel better. We try to help them put it into perspective and they feel no better about that thing. The trap I think of someone in your position can get in with a partner who's feeling bad about being unemployed or anything else is you offer reassurances and they don't seem reassured and you feel like you failed as a partner. When actually the only thing that's going to in the long run make your partner feel better about this is finding a job. In the short run, knowing that he has somebody who's there for him, who wants him to feel better, who's encouraging him to feel better, who's providing him with distractions that make him feel better in the moment, that matters. But there can be a disconnect because you're saying these things in hopes that he'll start to feel better. He doesn't seem to feel any better and you get frustrated because you aren't able to help him when actually you are helping him by saying those things but also just by listening to him when he expresses his frustration and his anxiety about this period of unemployment. He's got to feel his feelings. Let him feel his feelings. We all got to feel our feelings. You know what we don't want to do? We want to grope our feelings. We don't want to assault our feelings. So give him some time and space to feel his feelings and then encourage him to think about something else, to do something else, to feel something else by giving him distractions. And don't roll everything out that you want to do with him as a distraction. Let's do this to take your mind off that. Just initiate the doing of this, the doing of that, and it will be a distraction. You don't want him to think everything that you suggest doing together is about the unemployment or about trying to make him feel better when he doesn't and probably won't feel better about this until he gets a job, until he feels like he's back on his feet again. Hey, Dan, heterosexual female here. I'm 37 from the West Coast. I'm pregnant and I was incredibly happy about it. My partner and I have been wanting to have a kid for a while and, um, I was over the moon until I found out that I'm having a boy. And I know it's stupid to feel disappointed and to feel like I'm no longer connected to this pregnancy or something. Because I, my entire life I saw myself being a mother to a little girl. I, I don't think I ever imagined having a boy. Not really. Of course, it, you know, it has to do with family. My mother always wanted me to have a little girl and she always talked. My brother has boys and she always talked about how I was going to have her girl. But it, it really isn't about familial pressure, I don't think. I think I'm just discovering something about myself that's so horrible that I fundamentally, even though I'm in love with a man and I, you know, there's men I admire like you, I fundamentally don't like them, which sounds so silly like I hear myself talk and you know I understand that gender is a construct it's so stupid to be so attached to the genitals of a future baby but I can't help it I just I keep crying and crying and feeling like I lost my little girl that I never had and I'm, I'm older I'm 37 this may be the only child I ever have and I don't want to feel like I'm gonna resent this innocent little baby for not being what I imagined him to be and everybody keeps telling me you can you can have you can have a little girl later or little boys are the best you love them and I feel like I hope I will love him because he's my son I feel like obviously I will but I can't help this feeling of just deep sorrow and disappointment that I'm not gonna have a little girl and everything that I imagined this boy to be I'm like if he likes trucks and motorcycles I'm gonna like 
hate that. And, you know, everything feels exhausting where I'm like, oh, if my little girl like trucks and motorcycles, that would be cool. Which is, again, so incredibly unfair and stupid. And I know everything I'm saying is irrational and silly. I know that, but I can't feel it. So I guess, how do you get rid of a feeling is what I'm asking. How do I reconcile myself with, with the idea of maybe having a different type of motherhood that I never imagined I would have and just being as happy about that as I was before I heard this news. Listening to your call reminded me of the diary my mom kept when she was pregnant with me. She had four kids. She kept a diary each time she was pregnant and then gave those diaries to us when we were adults. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to have. What's funny about the diary my mother kept while she was pregnant with me is that she was absolutely, utterly convinced throughout that pregnancy that I was going to be a girl. She'd had two boys already. She wanted a girl. She believed deep in her gut that I was kicking that I was a girl. And then I turned out to be a boy. And then my mother got pregnant again and had my sister. So she finally had her girl. So my mom really wanted a girl. And I guess there may have been an instant after I was born, after the delivery, where she was disappointed to learn I'm so old that you didn't learn these things in advance then that she hadn't this time had a girl. Three boys in a row. I imagine there was a moment's disappointment because it's really clear from that diary that she was very invested in finally having a girl and me being a girl and convinced I was a girl. I never felt that from my mother. I never felt that she was in any way upset with me for being a boy, unhappy that I was a boy. I only ever felt complete and unconditional love. And she writes in that diary about when she first held me. I was born a week before her birthday and she took me home on her birthday. And, you know, she always called me the best birthday present that she ever got. I trust that you will fall in love with your child when your son is born and you first hold your son. These feelings you're having now, what you're grieving now, it will evaporate. And then by the time your son is two or three years old and picks up the truck instead of the doll, which your son almost invariably will because as much as we like to say gender is a construct, anyone who's raised kids, raised boys, raised girls, put gender neutral stuff in front of them or trucks in front of the girls and dolls in front of the boys and then watch those boys and girls swap toys knows that, yeah, a lot of gender is performance. A lot of gender is a construct, but not all of it. And you can't control for it. You have to let your kid be who your kid is going to be. You have no other choice. And you're going to love that boy that you fell in love with the moment he was born. You're going to love that boy when he plays with trucks. You're going to love that boy when he bites his sandwich into the shape of a gun and fires his peanut butter and jelly Uzi at his best friend. You're still going to love that boy. And you have to... Just trust that. Just believe that. Might be helpful to speak with a therapist or a shrink. I don't necessarily think you need to, though. I think this is really common. A lot of people get invested in their kids being one gender or the other, one sex or the other sex. A lot of people process what you're processing now, where the dad who wanted the boy has to grieve the boy he's not going to have and instantly falls in love with the daughter that he does. This is so common as to be a cliche. And it's not just dads who have that 
feeling of being invested in having a child of their sex. Moms have that feeling too. My mom had that feeling about me and my mom loved me to bits and you are going to love your son to bits. Do not fear that what you're experiencing right now or the feelings you're working through right now are going to interfere with that love. And you should maybe look at these feelings in a different way. You are working through all of this. You are getting all of this out of your system now so that when you meet your son, when your son is born, you're able to love him. That your grief at not having a girl this time has passed and you are in the clear. You're also pregnant right now and hormones are crazy and hormones make people crazy, including men. Our hormones make us crazy too. How many times have I described men on this show as testosterone-soaked dick monsters? Hormones are a wild ride that we are all on. It is a roller coaster that we are all on. And when you're pregnant, you go through some loop-de-loops. That roller coaster can get intense. And you have to be kind to yourself about what you're feeling and try to put it in perspective while still honoring those feelings. It is possible to feel two things at the same time. Disappointed that you didn't have a daughter and unconditional love for the son that you did have. My mom did it. My mom did it for me. I know that you can do it for your son too. Just make sure that when your son is 12, 13 years old, they don't find their way to the Savage Lovecast and discover this in the archives. Hi, Dan. This is about a friend. He's uh, actually my boss and uh, a mentor in the profession I'm trying to get into. We're currently in a major city in the Southwest. He recently confided in me that uh, his boyfriend, his on-again, off-again boyfriend of, of like 15 years, is basically treating him like crap and stole tens of thousands of dollars from him. And, you know, I told him, you know, basically DTMFA and he confided that he's, you know, just terrified of being alone. He only moved to the city about a year ago and he has made very few friends and no gay friends, as he's told me. And I'd like to hear some suggestions uh, for how he can make platonic friends and hopefully find someone interested in settling down since that's what he wants. He's aware that there are some new apps and websites for making uh, platonic gay friends, but he's old fashioned and he'd rather it happen in real life, you know, like at an art gallery or theater from a mutual friend, even though he's well aware that, you know, these kinds of functions aren't happening right now and probably won't really be happening for the next few months at least though he is vaccinated. So at least um, if he can find other vaccinated people, it'll be safer. He's in his mid forties to mid fifties. He really only came out in his late twenties after moving to the U S from the middle East. He doesn't drink. So it, I don't think he'll want to try going to any gay bars. Uh, what do you think? Should I just pressure him or suggest that he give the apps a chance or what other resources should he be aware of? Uh, he's a really brilliant, kind man. He's generous to a fault. I, I think he deserves someone who treats him as well as he treats others. Well, first things first, your boss, your mentor can't meet other people or have a new relationship, find a new boyfriend, find a new partner if he hasn't broken up with the guy who's stealing all this money from him. You say you've advised him to dump the motherfucker already. You don't say that he has. So that's the first step. 
The trick of making friends in adulthood is to get out there in the world and do things. And getting on the apps, I think, is one way people get out there in the world. They put themselves out there on the apps. But if he doesn't want to do the apps, he wants to meet people the old-fashioned way. He can't sit at home alone wondering why the people he wants to meet haven't kicked down his front door. There are people who are lucky enough to say that they have, as adults, people in their lives that they met that way when they were five or four. They walked up to them and said, hey, let's be friends. You can't do that when you're 45. That's not how 45-year-olds make friends. 45-year-olds make friends through work. 45-year-olds make friends when they're out there in the world doing shit that they enjoy. So if your boss, your mentor, he likes art galleries, he likes live theater, he should volunteer at art galleries. He should volunteer at live theaters. He should regularly patronize theaters. He should buy season tickets to all the theaters that he likes and go all the time and become a fixture. And he will meet other people who share his passion for whatever it is that he's passionate about and form bonds, form relationships. It'll take time. Someone will have to see him and then get used to seeing him and say hello to him. And maybe they'll strike a conversation and maybe they'll establish a rapport and then maybe they'll grab a drink sometime after or before a show. That's how adult friendships get off the ground. doesn't seem like something you should have to explain to an adult, but it seems that your boss mentor, who's a wonderful person, needs that explained to him, needs to get out there in the world. And he should get on the apps. Romantically, most couples these days, 80% of same-sex couples prior to the pandemic and the plurality of Opposite sex couples prior to the pandemic were meeting on the apps. I'm sure now it is a majority of even opposite sex couples who are meeting online and on dating apps, and he should disinhibit about that and put himself out there. If there's an app for people who just want to make friends, he should definitely, absolutely do that. And those relationships are as real and as legitimate. And that stigma that used to attach to, you know, people who met, you know, through personal ads, through newspapers, it's gone. That's over. He shouldn't worry about that anymore. But if that's not his style and he's not comfortable doing that, he doesn't have to do it. But after the pandemic is over, after everyone is vaccinated, if he wants to meet people the old fashioned way, then he has to do it the old fashioned way. He needs to get out there, get out there in the world, do things that he enjoys and he will meet other people who enjoy the same things that he does and he will find friends and maybe a new boyfriend and a better boyfriend that way. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with a very special guest. Seven years ago, the journalist Anna Sale created a space to talk about the most difficult subjects, subjects all of us avoid or gloss over or minimize or lie to ourselves or other people about. These subjects tend to fall under three broad headings, death, sex, and money. And so that was the name, Death, Sex, and Money. Sale gave her podcast, which quickly became not just a hit, but a community. She has a new book coming out from Simon & Schuster in May. Let's talk about hard things, which ironically enough was an alternative title for the Savage Lovecast. Hey, Anna Sale, how are you? Is that right? No, I'm just joking. But we talk about hard things a lot on this show, (laughs) just different hard things. Yeah, and and hard things. Right. Yes, it's true. Um, thank you for taking a break from your very thoughtful podcast to come on my very dumb podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. It's really a pleasure. So the subjects you deal with are often just rough and hard for people to talk about. That's the idea behind the show. And I know that sometimes I, I read the mail I get and have to 
take a break, which is code for have an edible. Um, and my stuff tends to just <laughs> attract like lighter stuff, lighter questions, but sometimes it's heavy and it really affects me. You, you swim with the heavy all the time. How does it affect you doing the show? You know, I don't feel this heaviness when I get questions or emails or read stories from listeners because there's something really incredible about the way I receive it is someone saying, this is going on in my life and I, I need to talk about it. And I'm wondering if other people are going through this same thing. So it's it's kind of in this spirit of like building community and I don't want to be alone. And can you help me not be alone in this? I think it's much harder to talk to somebody about a hard thing when they're not open and willing to talk about a hard thing. Mm -hmm. So my experience has been this incredible, like, just when you when you say, like, here's the place for all those things that that are are giving you trouble and are making you feel alienated and lonely and scared and uh, like you don't know where to go. Like, here's the place to send it. And and so it feels ultimately good that they have a place to send it, as as you know really well, really intimately, I imagine. Yeah. And it is sometimes weird how people – it's almost like – I feel like people call me or they write me a letter because they need to tell someone who isn't in their immediate orbit, their immediate family, isn't the person in their bed – about whatever it is they're feeling, almost as a practice, a trial run. And they're yeah, willing to do it exactly. on a podcast, in a column, in front of a lot of people who are strangers. And there's something abstract about the, the readers or the listeners out there, but just getting to say it does seem to help. And maybe that's where we can take comfort, is it can help people unburden. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like people talk to a podcast host, they talk to a bartender, they talk to a therapist. It is it is practice. And and actually, as I was writing the book and trying to apply what I've learned about talking about hard things from doing interviews for a podcast to like actual real life, it, it is a lot harder. You know, I'm a much better human and a much more generous listener when I'm hosting my show than when I'm, for example, fighting with my husband. I'm a much worse person. <laughs> same, same, same. <laughs> the numbers of times I've had my husband look at me and say, and what would Dan Savage say to you at this moment? Um, oh. <laughs> of the three, death, sex, and money, which do you think is the hardest to get people to open up about? And spoiler, my money's on money. Yeah. I mean, for, I, I think it very much depends on where you come from in life and what you've go, what you're going through in the moment. But uh, I find money is the thing that it seems like we have the least kind of social vocabulary for how to deal with all the feelings that come up. You know, we don't even know if we can talk about dollar amounts with our closest friends and colleagues. You know, and and so I think that money is can be the most paralyzing. Um, and money is certainly the hardest for me because that is where all of my hangups are the most um, ridiculous. Oh my God, mine too. We have that in common. I find it really difficult <laughs> to, to talk about money. You know, there've been times when I was, you know, doing a deal or something for television and I literally just said, all right, and this is when I leave the room because I can't talk about compensation. Huh. So I probably have been undercompensated. Oh, that's interesting. Does it make you feel like 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 you're going to be feel undervalued or like you're afraid you're going to undersell yourself? Like what's the anxiety? You know, my my parents were always broke and had four kids. And so money was yeah. just always a really tense subject and an unhappy one and it just I just get overwhelmed with like crazy unhappy feelings. Um, it's one of the things I love about mm. my husband. He takes care of all of that. I don't ever have to look at anything except April 15th. I sign some tax forms. Otherwise, he's on top of it. Mm -hmm. 
you find sometimes the, you know, the person who compliments you, the person that you need. Um, but we're not here to talk about me here to talk about you. Um, you draw people out on these really difficult subjects. Have you ever had a guest bail or ask you after doing an interview not to run it? Um, you know, uh, let's see, I'll put those in two categories. We, I have had someone who kind of like thought he, he was a public person and he thought he was ready to talk about the, the pretty paralyzing um, anxiety that he was dealing with in his life and, and mental illness. And then in fact, like he, he didn't feel ready to make that public. Mm-hmm. So that was something where we just said, that's fine. You know, we don't have to, we don't have to use this tape at all. And we wish you the best of luck with your health. Other times, I, I can remember uh, I did an interview about money um, with a woman named Sally Krawcheck, who is a former big bank executive who now kind of does uh, a lot of, um, you know, talking about women's empowerment around money. And and I was asking her about her sort of, you know, just life with money and learning about money and what drove her in business. And if it sometimes felt uncomfortable for her to be now kind of coaching women about money when she just had so much more than a lot of women that, that were in her audience because she had this, you know, history of being a bank executive. And she did not like that question, like like pointing out the the success that she had and the financial comfort she had felt like a, a moral indictment. And so she sort of very she, she bristled. She told me she was pitting out, which I learned is like, um, <laughs> I guess, Wall Street bro speak for sweating and, and being kind of like uh, anxious. And then we talked through it. And it's in the episode about like, wait, what's going on here? And, and, and then we sort of unpacked it together. But it was interesting to me that someone whose entire adult life had been about, you know, money, making more money, and now talking to people about how to manage your money, just the fact saying out loud, like, you have a lot of money. That, um, that, that's really ironic because um, the one thing I'm always most uncomfortable talking with people about privately, personally, is sex. I can run my mouth in front of, about oh. it in front of a microphone. I can joke about it in front of an audience. If somebody just like – particularly a relative starts asking me personal questions about myself about sex, I kind of just freeze up. Don't want to go there. Huh. Interesting. Well, that's that's your right. You know, it's important to have boundaries. You know, they can be different in public and private conversations. So you have chapters on death, sex and money, also family and identity. Are those distinct chapters or intersecting? I mean, I've read the book, so I know. But when you carve those out (laughs) as their own chapters, it's not like family doesn't come up in discussions of money and identity doesn't come up in discussions of sex. Why did they get their own standalone chapters? You know, I just sort of felt like, for one, like family felt like I wanted to explore like what is so hard about this particular setting for hard conversations. Like it's both the the people with whom we have to have hard conversations because we have to talk about life and death. We grow up, we separate, we figure out whether we have a relationship in adulthood and how close we are. All these things, you know, we have different versions of, of whether our childhoods were happy all of that is happening. And and I wanted to just like give some space to why is that so hard? And also like uh, allow for, to, to say out loud, the reason family conversations are hard is there's this built-in assumption of closeness and shared origin. And so when you do feel separation or isolation from your family, it can feel like you're somehow, it's unnatural because family is supposed to be close. And I wanted to say like, look, Actually, another really natural thing of being a human in this world is growing up, 
moving away from the the sort of maternal paternal relationship you have with parents separating so that separation is also very natural so you're going to feel this tension between closeness and separation and that is if you accept that that is the landscape for family conversations like you're not either going to feel apart or close you're going to feel both in confusing ways, then it's if you accept that that's just what happens in family conversations, then when you notice it, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm talking to my sister. This is why this is really charged and hard. It's not something specific to the relationship or something you're doing wrong in family. It's because family has those dynamics. I wish people, I wish there was a, a broader cultural understanding of the way family functions. Like we all get that families are created. You know, people come together and they create a family. There's of time though, when family comes apart and it's not because of death, it's because of that moving away and that separating. And it feels so awkward and unnatural and hard and painful, but I think it's more painful than it needs to be because we don't regard it as a natural sort of state or progression because a new family, new families can't form if old families don't, don't change, change and in a way end or take a different form. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, parents kind of learn this like of course you're never going to be as close to your child as when like for me like I had infants who were you know drinking from my body you know that there is going to be this whole process of raising them is this process of separation um but I think it it can be confusing with things like siblings and uh you know figuring out your relationship to your parents as you become an adult but yes exactly I think that like you have to you have to move apart to create new family. And also, you know, there's certainly like a lot of space to think about and use the word family for people who you don't share a biological connection and to really uh, honor what those relationships can be. And then, you know, like identity, I just really felt like in 2021 America, I'm writing this book as a white woman. Like I really felt like to say you're writing a book about talking about hard things and not directly addressing the differences uh, based on, you know, who you are, how you identify and how you are identified in our society, like that felt like a real, like, I just couldn't, that would be a wimpy pass. So I had to have a chapter that just went right at that. How do you talk about difference? How do you talk about racism? How do you talk about, you know, disability, gender dynamics, like all these things. So I wanted to go right at that in a separate chapter. Can we ask you to stick around and take a couple of questions from my callers, which would make this an episode of Sex, Sex and Sex? (laughs) I would love it. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a New Englander calling with a question about my sister. Unfortunately, in 2019, she did face a major loss and lost her longtime partner. And I was a bit surprised, although not judgmental, when she found a new one shortly afterwards. Um, Push comes to shove, and this year uh, they decide that they're going to get married. I am not a judgmental person. I just feel nothing um, about maybe moving things a little bit fast. But within the past few weeks, I've gotten to know their relationship a little bit more and I'm worried that she is dating quite literally a bum man-child. Refuses to get a job, is comfortable sitting in front of a television all day uh, while she works several jobs to make rent. She tells me about like several types of ultimatums she tries to give him and I try to fight back by saying you're being his mother Um, but she is like 
very playfully on the fence about marrying this guy. Is there any way that like I can just push her off that fence and get her to say no? So this is a hard conversation to have, and this comes up a lot. I get a lot of questions about this. My sister, my brother, my dad, my mom uh, is with somebody terrible, and they're about to marry them. How do I talk them out of it? What do I say? What's your advice on that difficult conversation? I thought this this I, 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 this recording was really interesting. I mean, I would say first, this is a conversation you need to recognize is about your relationship with your sister. It's not a conversation about her relationship with her new partner because, you know, you don't know whether she's going to marry this guy or not. So if you come in strong and say, I'm going to push you, really try to push you off the fence and tell you this is a bad idea, and then she marries this guy – you're going to have a really damaged relationship uh, for a time. So I would say you can come at her with curiosity and love. Um, I, I have a lot of sis- siblings. I have a lot of sisters. I'm a middle child. And I can tell you, if you come at me trying to push me off a fence in a certain way, if you're my sister, I am going to put, go in the other direction. So like, but if a sister comes to me and says, I really want to know, like, I've been noticing, you know, you've been playfully saying you're on the fence. Like, can we actually talk about that? Like, are are you having doubts? And and come from a place of curiosity. And then if you do hear that she has sincere fears and doesn't know how to get out of this relationship, you can say things like, you know what it's like to to lose a partner. You just lost your partner two years ago and you know how complicated it can be. Mm. And, And I just want to think about how you can, you know, let's talk about like, Maybe you maybe you get married, maybe you don't get married, but let's talk about, like, wh- are there ways to protect yourself? You can talk about the legal stuff. You could talk about the financial stuff. Or you could say, like, look, it's a, I want you to be able to, whatever you decide I'm going to support, if that's sincerely something the sister believes, but just really try to let, let your relationship be a place where it's okay to explore this ambivalence um, and that you're going to be there on either side, whether she marries him or not. Does the best friend have a different responsibility to be more direct? You're saying that, you know, if your sister came to you, you might react defensively and it might have the opposite of the intended effect. If the intention was to peel the sister off this guy that you don't think is a good guy, if a best friend came to you, could that, could a best friend say, don't marry this asshole? And be heard differently? I mean, I, yeah, I think maybe. I mean, it, it, like, but it certainly just depends on the friendship. Like, you know, you could have the same thing where then if she gets married and she thinks you don't like your husband, she, she might never not ever invite you over for dinner again. You know, there could be that risk as well. But I think a friend kind of be like, is this really what you want? You know, like may, maybe talk about like what seemed to really work in the previous relationship. If you if you observed that with her partner before, if he was a different kind of guy who wasn't a bum who watched TV all the time and just sort of explore like what do you what's great about this? Like what do you why do you think you this is the relationship that you want to be in? Just but again, I still think it's better to come with questions than to come with judgment. Hey, so I am a mid 30s woman in the Midwest bisexual. And I have been super solitary during quarantine. And I'm starting to open up as people get vaccinated. And there's this man that I've met out of a multiple that I've been talking to and one that I met in person. And he's just fucking perfect. And I don't know if it's that it's been so long and just fucking anyone will do or if this man is just really good, but I'm feeling really awkward and I don't know how to get back into 
dating and not being like, oh my God, let's hang out all the time because I miss society. Do you have any advice on how to like ease into this without being super weird? So zooming out for a second before we get to the caller's concern, people have been stuck at home with more time to think about things that they might have been avoiding before the pandemic. Has the pandemic changed your show in any noticeable ways, your interview subjects or your listeners? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I mean, for one, like, you know, just calling people when they're sitting at home and you're doing FaceTime audio with them when they haven't talked to anybody for a week, <laughs> you know, they're in a different sort of emotional space. You know, I think for at least you know, particularly during the first months, like we were all so fragile and just like trading observations about how our worlds were changing and and what it was making us think about. Um, and I think now I'm hearing a lot about very similarly to what the scholar is saying, like, how do I like, what am I resuming here? What's different? And what's going to be the same? And I don't know how to do this anymore. But I think it's like, it's such a cool, like the idea of getting to date and be like, wow, what what was it like for you during pandemic? What did you like to make it a thing that you can talk about? Um, and, and even like acknowledge a certain clumsiness as, you know, the world is changing and we're all figuring out how to do, you know, small talk on dates again, you know, it's a, it's a way to sort of like acknowledge the clumsiness and then make it a way to talk about like, how did you find you dated before? Like, what did you do during the pandemic? Like, do you, do you find, like, do you think you're going to date in a different way? Just like kind of make it a subject to explore together as a way to get to know each other. I completely agree. You know, the thing, the subject that comes up for me all the time is awkwardness. It will be awkward if, and awkward can't be avoided, but it's somehow becomes less awkward or less powerful, less intimidating. If it's acknowledged to say, well, this is awkward. You know, whether you're asking someone to have a three-way with you and your partner, whether you're dating post-pandemic and you feel like you're a little too swept up just in getting to have human contact again and you're worried that's making things awkward or or warping things, just to say it, to, to verbalize it doesn't ruin it. Does It doesn't mean the person won't want to have a three-way with you. It doesn't mean the person won't want to date you. Uh, it just means that you can both relax a little bit about the awkwardness because it's been acknowledged because it's there – and sometimes it's the ignoring of something that makes it bigger, scarier, more harmful. Yeah. And it's like, it can be really funny when you acknowledge it. Like I, I write about in my book, like I met the the guy who's now my husband. I met him when I was separated, but not yet officially divorced. My divorce papers were filed, but I was just like in the throes of like, my world was upside down. I, I was not an impressive person. <laughs> and I, when I met him, I was drinking a gin and tonic by a lake and I fell into the lake. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to say to him, like, this is what's happening in my life right now. If you want in on this, like, have at it. But I don't know where this is going. You know, like, so it just gave us this space where I was just like, I don't know what's happening in my life, but I'm going to just narrate what's happening day by day with you. And it, it, looking back, it's such a cool way to like, like build a relationship with someone because then you can just like you have this groundwork of saying like you know what are you noticing now what's important to you now like and, and it also shows that you can laugh at yourself and hopefully the person that you're this perfect guy you know has some self-awareness and can also laugh at himself I think that's an important thing to learn about when you're dating it's funny at the beginning of a relationship we often construct what I think are sort of Potemkin village versions of ourself you know we put on this mm-hmm. front that's perfect. And then part of what falling in love and being in a relationship is about is eventually those fronts, you, you begin to see through them or behind them or they come down. 
And then each person has to decide whether they want to live in that real village, not the Potemkin version of that village. And if you begin in an awkward place or falling in the lake with a gin and tonic in your hands, it's the real thing. It's the actual village that you're yeah. inviting them into and not the Potemkin <laughs> exactly. village. And I say that as someone in the 27th yeah. year of a rebound relationship, that starting from an awkward place can be the best place. All right, we have one more. It can and it's, be really great. It's a little dirtier. Okay, good. Hi, Dan. I have a blowjob question for you. Pacific Northwest, cis male. I've spent the pandemic thinking a lot about the blowjobs I've had and the ones that I'm not having. And it usually seems to come down to one in particular that happened to me some years ago. I had a girlfriend for a little while and she gave me one in particular where she would suck me and jerk me. And uh, she did that just as she had before until she somehow could tell when I was just about ready to come and she would push her thumb firmly just below my balls on the root of my cock very firmly and it shut my orgasm down completely. What was going on there? And, and she did this over and over again, I think about three times. So by the fourth time I got ready to come, I didn't know if she was going to give me the thumb or if she was just going to let me go and she let me go. And I can tell you, it's probably the best orgasm I've ever had. Went right down her throat. Didn't bat an eye. It was fantastic. But what's going on there uh, with the thumb? Is that something other people do? And where did she learn how to do it? Anna, I imagine this is the only blowjob question you're going to get on your book tour. <laughs> it's certainly the first, but maybe there will be more. We'll see. Fingers crossed. So your expert advice. My expert advice. Well, I thought, number one, like, how can she tell I was going to come? That was just like, duh. I feel like that's... <laughs> yes, I agree. You can tell when you're giving a blowjob when it's happening. Um, it's something that you can you can both kind of physically get a get a sense of, and also like maybe you'll get some other cues. So I, that didn't seem like a mystery to me. I really liked um, where did she learn how to do it? Because I I liked picturing this like secret thumb on the cock academy <laughs> where, where, where where people were taught how to do this. But I the thing it made me wonder about was like. It's so interesting that that the way he described it, what was in, what was powerful about it was she would use the thumb and it turned him off like a spigot, like made the orgasm possibility go away. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like it's not it wasn't that he, she she was teasing him. It was that she like stopped it. And then finally, you know, a few blowjobs later, she let it happen. And I thought, well, that's that's just an interesting like clearly you're you're into like playing with domination and different power dynamics and, and blowjobs, which is something that is cool to think about and to know was for it, future blowjobs. Wait, was it more than yourself. one blowjob or was it a series of blowjobs where she just didn't let him come I, until finally? I don't know. That's how I heard it. I mean, this is what I want to know. I don't know about how the thumb thing would feel. Like, do you know what what happens? What is he describing? Does it shut it off completely or does it just like lower the tension and then you have to build back up? I think it's really interesting that he doesn't seem to have as good a read on 
his body in orgasmic plateaus as this woman did, which just says to me he's not uh-huh. as in touch with his own body as the woman he was with was or this woman was. Um, because if he'd reached the point of orgasmic inevitability and she pulled this move, which is not putting pressure on the balls, it's putting pressure on the urethra either before or behind the balls, usually behind the balls, to to prevent ejaculation. And someone can basically ejaculate, have all the orgasmic contractions. But if you're pressing down on the urethra, the semen's not going to go flying out. But if they've had their orgasmic contractions, if he has or the penis haver has, uh, then the semen is going to be in the pipes and then just gradually leak out. It's kind of a mess. But So I think what she was doing was she was just – doing this hard press well in advance of the point of orgasmic inevitability that for him became a kind of a reset. It kind of set him back a little bit. It pushed him off that uh-huh. plateau before the final orgasmic inevitability, not plateau peak. And so that's what she was doing. She was getting him close, but not so close that, you know, there's that moment when you're going to come, even if your mom and a marching band walk into the room and you can't stop it. And she was getting you <laughs> Not quite to that point, but a little before it and then signaling with that pressure that you weren't going to come. There are some people out there who do this. There are some people who attach. I I think it's a little woo-woo. You hear about it from some tantra people to to retain the semen in the body and the life force and power and whatever of the semen. And the carcinogens, also carcinogens in semen. That's why people who don't masturbate, men who don't masturbate, penis havers who don't masturbate, uh, don't ejaculate, don't clear the pipes, are at higher risk for prostate cancer. So it's not just huh. magic elixir, woo-woo power. It's also carcinogens. So you might want to get those out of your body. But you can prevent your body from basically shooting it all out. And some of it will dribble out, some of it will be reabsorbed. So what I think was going on with this particular woman and this particular blowjob was she was just inflicting a little bit of pain, a little bit of pressure and discomfort to retard his orgasm, but not – not some like magic reset button. It was just a little pushback. Interesting. And I just, as a technique, do you think that's like a, do you recommend it? If you want <laughs> to like tease and lengthen the, the, the like the, how long you give like the pleasure of a blowjob for your partner. Is that, is that a good move? Uh, I think it, it, it can be a good move. I mean, blowjobs are so subjective, the experience of them. Uh, and, and there are some people who have to kind of concentrate, some men who have to concentrate to kind of get there from that sensation to climax. So you don't want to do anything to re- to slow it down because then you'll be blowing them for six days. Uh, and, and other guys are very quick. They get Maybe she sensed that you were a caller, that you were easily stimulated and this kind of stimulation would get you there fast. And so she pulled this move out from uh, – Thumb on the cock academy. Yeah, the, the, the thumb on the cock. She, she, she remembered this from her school days, from her Catholic high school, uh, and, and pulled this out just for the caller. Um, the caller, you can experiment with this. You can masturbate, get yourself close, and then apply this pressure yourself. Most people who do this for the Tantra woo-woo thing do it during solo self-pleasure and masturbation. So what do you think the odds are legitimately that you'll get another blowjob? Of course, maybe somebody else who's going to interview you will listen to this podcast and then know to ask you a follow-up blowjob question. You have that to look forward to. I know. Well, that, then I, I, that, that person, I will give a gold star because that's really doing your prep work. <laughs> so, 
but we'll see. We'll see. If it's our only one of the book tour, Dan, I'm really glad it's something we got to share together. As am I. Anna Sale, creator and host of the Death, Sex, and Money podcast from WNYC. Her new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, comes out from Simon & Schuster on May 4th. Anna, thank you so much for demeaning yourself by coming on my podcast. I really appreciate it. (laughs) I'm really glad to be here. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for all you do. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis bisexual female in my late 20s. I have a couple things that I'd love your advice on. So I'm not sure that I've ever orgasmed with a partner. At most, I think I've maybe experienced many orgasms, if that's a thing, where there is some sort of release, but it's not at all as intense or obvious as when I come on my own. I asked my close friends if their orgasms feel different during partnered sex, and they all said that their orgasms feel as strong, if not stronger, than from solo sex. I've had sex with both men and women with that same mini-gasm experience, if anything happens at all. Part of this is on me because I haven't felt comfortable voicing my needs out of fear of making someone feel inadequate. I'm working on it. Even when I have voiced my needs recently, I haven't been able to finish. I know from reading Becoming Cliterate that the most reliable way to orgasm during partnered sex is to use the same method as when masturbating. So here's the other thing. From the time that I was seven and on, I've needed some sort of visual aid to orgasm. It progressed from provocative pictures when I was young to pornography in my teens and on. I'd say 98% of the time I watch lesbian porn and 2% of the time I'll seek out stepdad porn. When watching porn alone, I've orgasmed with vibrators, my hand, or through humping. I'm afraid that I've trained my brain to only orgasm with this kind of visual stimulation and that I cannot get off with a partner at all. I know that there are some women out there with that experience, but the thought that I'd never be able to finish with a partner makes me feel sad. I've recently tried incorporating viewing pornography during partnered sex, but I couldn't finish unless he was outside of the room. So I'm not sure if I have performance anxiety or shame or what. If you have any suggestions about how to bridge the gap from needing visual aid to orgasms with a partner or about how to feel more comfortable using my methods in front of someone, I'd love to hear them. One time you gave this one try incorporating some visual stim into partnered sex and you didn't quite get there and now you're wondering if you ever can. Well, try, try again. You are clearly a little self-conscious about this need, perhaps this deep groove that you carved in yourself where you need some visual stimulation. Uh, You need to be focused on porn while you're self-pleasuring in order to have the very intense orgasms you're capable of having when you're on your own. And that's your block. It's the self-consciousness that's pulling you out of the moment. Now, some people will feel that, you know, you're looking at porn while you're with them is pulling you out of the moment with them. And you need to find somebody who enjoys that, who wants to look at the porn too, who can share that moment with you. Have those orgasms. Keep trying, keep trying until you get there. Burn through that self-consciousness. And I guarantee you, you will have those orgasms during partnered sex with some visual stim. And then you'll be creating a new association. You'll be carving not a different groove, not a replacement groove, but a, a, a an additional groove, which is the ability to come during partnered sex. Maybe the biz stim is always going to have to be there. You always need a little bit of that pornography playing in the corner of the room that you can glance at every once in a while. 
Maybe not. Maybe you'll be glancing over less and less over time and you'll be able to throw that crutch away during partnered sex, still enjoy it during solo sex. But during partnered sex, after you have some orgasms with a partner using the tools that you need to use at this moment to have those orgasms, you will create that new association, carve that new groove and find yourself having orgasms with a partner without having to fire up the laptop, without having to go to the porn site. It may be that it's playing in the corner and you have that thundering orgasm for the first time with a partner and you realize after the fact that you never once glanced over at the porn. And that'll be a Yahtzee moment for you. That'll be a success. Not that you ever have to get there necessarily. You can enjoy those less intense orgasms during partnered sex. You can enjoy the great orgasms you're able to have by yourself with the little pornographic assistance and you can enjoy those similarly great orgasms with a partner with a little pornographic assistance and all those things can work for you there's no one right way to come no one right orgasm to have you can have them you should have them and you should be less self-conscious about the way you need to get there and how you enjoy them and you shouldn't give up so quickly you're calling me after one attempt you're going to have to give it more than one try, and you're going to have to make sure when you try it next that the person you're doing it with is into it, enjoys it too. They aren't giving you any sort of weird feeling or vibe about it, that they're not shaming you, and you're not reading shame into behaviors or, or anything they're saying or doing that isn't there to get past the self-consciousness. And once you get past the self-consciousness and once you're bringing to the bed and to the bedroom everything that you need to get there, I promise you, you will get there. Hi, Dan. I'm a 41-year-old lesbian living in Seattle. I've been with my wife for 10 years. And last month on our wedding anniversary, I found out that she is having an affair with a customer of hers from the coffee shop she works at. Obviously, my entire world was completely shattered in an instant upon finding out and my wife has moved out and signed a six-month lease in an apartment of her own. She ha is claiming that she wants our marriage, our family, our relationship, me, et cetera, et cetera. But I basically put everything on the table that we could have group sex and kind of lots, we can explore lots of other ways over this next six months while we're separated, but that in order for our marriage to stay intact, she could not explore romantic and sexual relationships with other people. She said that that is what she actually needs, though, and seems to believe that gallivanting around town and fucking whoever she wants for the next six months is going to enlighten her and bring her some kind of peace to be able to move forward in a lifetime relationship with me. So you can see how that's pretty contradictory. I'm monogamous. She's stating that she no longer is. She needs to go fuck a bunch of people. But in six months, she wants to reconcile and believes our marriage is going to be stronger than it ever was. I, Dan, do not see how this could happen. She has broken every bit of trust and respect and pride that I had in her and in our relationship and our marriage. And I don't see how we could ever reconcile after she spends six months fucking other people. Have you ever heard of this happening? Have you ever heard of people actually getting back together after this and being a stronger, better couple for a lifetime? It seems like a complete unicorn story to me. Sure. Yeah. I've heard of couples who got back together after an affair, after betrayal, even after a long, bitter separation. It is possible 
for couples to work through this and not just have a kind of tense detente on the other side, but to have a better, healthier, more honest and thriving relationship on the other side. Our perspective on what cheating does to relationships is often warped by the fact that when a there's cheating when there's an affair and it's discovered and the couple separates or divorces, we all find out about it. When there's an affair and the couple works through it and reconciles, not in all cases is that disclosed. Mostly, I think in most cases, we don't find out about the affair. So we see these thriving couples and we think that no bad thing ever happened to them, that obviously they love and support each other and they've never betrayed or cheated on each other when – in some instances, with those thriving couples in their second or third decade, there were betrayals. There were affairs that we just don't know about. So it can happen. Will it happen to you? I kind of don't think so. What your wife is telling you is that she wants to dictate terms. She doesn't want to renegotiate the terms of the relationship. She doesn't want to find a way for her desire for other sexual partners to be accommodated within the relationship in a way that makes you feel comfortable Having group sex, for instance, I love that definition of monogamy. Queers often have that definition of monogamy. We are monogamous, a gay couple will say, or a same-sex couple will say, because we only have sex with each other and we only have sex with other people together. That's the kind of queer monogamy that you're putting on the table and she's rejecting it. She wants to be able to pursue romantic and sexual relationships with other people, whether you like it or not. And she was pursuing a romantic and sexual relationship with somebody else behind your back and how scalding, particularly considering how much of your identity is wrapped up in this relationship and your successful marriage and the success of it being monogamous or so you thought, to find out on your 10th wedding anniversary that she was cheating on you in this way. Indeed, you know, I don't like catastrophic language when it comes to affairs because affairs are so common. And if we describe them as shattering, if we say that, you know, our entire world ends and we use catastrophizing language to describe affairs, I think we're likelier than to experience them as catastrophes as opposed to something that happens and a lot of couples work through and it's unpleasant and unwelcome, but a lot of couples get through it. I think we're less likely to get through it if we describe it in catastrophic terms. But in this instance, kind of does sound like catastrophic language is appropriate. And what your wife is asking or attempting to dictate to you is unfair and gaming it out six months, which is going to run around eating all the pussy for six months and six months from now, she's going to make a monogamous commitment to you and dump whoever she was not just having sex with, but also dating in the last six months. No, no. If what she's arrived at is that monogamy may have been right for her before, but it's not right for her now and not what she wants to do now. And monogamy, that queer brand of monogamy, where you only have sex with each other or with other people together with each other, is something that you insist on. And she's telling you by her actions and now her words that she can't do it and won't do it for you. Yeah, it's hard for me to see how that works out. Doesn't mean you have to call in the lawyers now. You can just be separated and both be free to do whatever you want to do and then come back together in six months and see where you're at. Could be in six months, you're no longer as invested in monogamy as you are now. I think that's unlikely, but who knows? Maybe in six months you will have found your way toward uh, polyamorous under duress because you want to still be with her even if that means paying the price of admission of allowing her to have other sex partners, other romantic relationships. Maybe during the six-month separation, 
while she's doing what and who she wants to do, you'll also get out there and date. And you'll have a different feeling when you guys come back together to discuss your relationship or your marriage or whether it's going to survive going forward after having those experiences yourself. I don't think it would be crazy for you to wait six months before calling in the lawyers. My hunch is in six months you will be calling in the lawyers, but anything is possible. And among those couples who stayed together and are thriving now in the wake of an affair, amongst those couples, you will find many individuals who, like you, were really invested in monogamy, who were really shattered when they found out that they had been cheated on, and who are now in healthy, thriving relationships that aren't as monogamous or as strictly monogamous or, as, or monogamous at all anymore and are content. Could you wind up being one of those people? Not right now, obviously. Let's see where you are in six months. Hey, Dan. I'm calling from Austin, Texas with my sister. We have a really interesting quandary for you. We have an elderly father who has been talking to romance scammers, and he thinks he's going to get a new wife this way, and he's been giving away thousands and thousands of dollars. We have been dealing with this for months and months on end, and there are no legal avenues for us to stop him from doing this, but we're very, very concerned about his well-being, and we had an idea, and I thought you would be the perfect person to ask if you can tell us how to find an ethical prostitute or an ethical escort to give him some companionship and maybe some sort of physical and emotional support. He's 82 years old. My mother passed away in January, and we need also somebody who can cook. He just wants to be fed and loved. It's an unusual thing, but I have a feeling that this is not something that I feel like there are other people who are probably dealing with this issue. You know, we're both Gen Xers and, you know, he's old and he's lonely and he just wants somebody to give him some love. But I don't want to just go like on Backpage or Craigslist and find random prostitutes. So if you could help us find an ethical person to help him and take care of his needs. I know it sounds a little crazy, but we're just trying to do something to help him get through the last years of his life. You're looking for two different things here. You're looking for a sex worker who can provide your dad, not just with sex. He says he wants a wife. He kind of wants a relationship. He wants that girlfriend experience again. And he can find that if his ego can handle that. You know, if These people who are scammers, what they lead men like your father to believe is that this isn't a transactional relationship, that they are in love with them, that this is about affection even as they pick their pockets. And the pocket picking can be obvious to us because we're not, you know, the the appalled children standing by, we're not blinded by our own egos or our desire for this thing to be true or blinded by our own dickful thinking as your father is probably currently blinded. So if you can appeal to your father's reason and tell him, you know, he's paying a lot right now for the attention of these women and getting really nothing in return. These are transactional relationships that he's engaged in with these scammers online. And he can have a transactional relationship with a sex worker, even sex workers closer to his age, probably in these people who are scamming him online, he can have a transactional relationship with a sex worker that's affectionate, that's mutually respectful, that he actually gets something out of, that he gets some time and attention and affection and touch if that's what he lacks 
and that's what he wants. But a cook, a cook is a different person. That's a different kind of transactional relationship. If you want to hire someone to cook for your dad, put that out there. Find somebody who'll come to your dad's house a couple of days a week, bring groceries and make him a meal and prepare a few other meals to put in the fridge. But that's not a sex worker. And even sex workers who can cook would be insulted to be asked to do that kind of work. And you wouldn't be able to afford a sex worker's hourly rate to make your dad some fucking pork chops. So got a reason with your dad, dad, call him dad. You're paying a lot of money and getting nothing, getting used, getting scammed. Let's find an honest, ethical sex worker, someone in her forties or fifties or sixties. They're out there who will take your money and give you something in return, give you affection, give you time, give you attention and you'll be paying for it. Yeah. Yeah but you'll be getting something. You're paying for it right now and getting nothing but ripped off. And if your dad has the means, you also might want to suggest to him assisted living. He moves into assisted living, moves to a retirement community. There will be people cooking for him. There'll be a whole staff cooking for him. And we've all seen the documentaries about these retirement homes where everybody's getting laid all the time. There are way more women than men. There is a scarcity of men in assisted living. And he will have a lot of potential age-appropriate girlfriends to choose from to get the attention and the affection he wants without having to pay for it. Unless, of course, you count paying for the assisted living facility, which is, of course, prohibitively expensive for most families and most men. But if your dad can swing it, and if he's flushing all this money down the toilet on scammers, maybe he can. If your dad can swing it, Moving into an assisted living facility, moving into an old folks home, retirement community. Yeah, that'll be your dad's best bet on the food front and the girlfriend front. Before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some of our listener tweets. Allie Muchmore tweets, to the dude in episode 757 of the Savage Lovecast asking about the sensitivity of female anatomy and how, quote, for some women, if you're doing 100% of the shit they want right, it can still take longer than some others to come please recommend Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are. I've recommended Emily's book before. I will again. Everyone should read Emily Nagoski's Come As You Are. And everyone should bear in mind that it takes some people longer than others to come, even when you're doing 100% of the shit they like. And you should never assume that just because you're doing the shit someone likes, you're doing it well or doing it right for them. Always solicit feedback, whatever you're doing. Cecily tweets, This week's Savage Lovecast with the anti-vax pseudoscience head-up-her-ass caller had me screaming at my podcast app. Dan and Dr. Brock, setting her straight, had me laughing out loud moments later. Anti-vaxxers cannot be reasoned with. They can only be ignored. Sadly, we can't ignore the anti-vaxxers. We didn't. That's why we had Dr. Barack on. We gotta slap them down. And finally, LeanBean65 tweets, Thanks for having Dr. Barack on to talk about vaccines. It is so important that we separate fact from fiction and get as many people vaccinated as possible. This ain't over. Indeed, it ain't. Please, if you have not yet been vaccinated and the vaccine is available where you are, go get vaccinated now. All right. Thanks to everyone who tweeted about the show this week or posted to your social media. We really appreciate it. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, longtime Magnum subscriber calling in with a response call for episode 757 for the first caller during the vaccine portion of the show, the vaccine deferrer. 
first like to say your opinions and your concerns are valid. And I'd like to apologize on behalf of the people around you who made you feel ostracized. Uh, sounds like you're coming from the right place. There's nothing wrong with seeking out more information, so shame on them. I'd also like to shed some light on the situation and my opinion regarding why at times those anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers are put into this negative box. And like I said, in my opinion, and I know I'm not alone, during this time, these people who are anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers are resisting for the sake of resisting. In their mentality, they are Americans and you can't tell them what to do. And it doesn't matter what you tell them to do. The simple fact that you're telling them they have to do it is why they're resisting. They're not basing anything on science. Uh, they're just being stubborn. If at the beginning of the pandemic, you would have told that same group of people that they were not allowed to wear masks instead of that they had to wear masks, I assure you that their group would be called pro-maskers and they would be just as pissed about the situation. That's just how America is. You can't tell anybody what to do, and they think they're badasses for taking a stand against everything. I think that's where our frustrations come from. It's time for America to swallow their pride and do what's right. This is the land of the free and the home of the brave, and in order for us to be free, we have to be brave. I hope she uh, decides to do the right thing. Hello, Dan and the team. This is a response to episode 757 um, and the caller who had a question on clip sizes and responses. I loved your answer, but there was just one detail I wanted to flag. Um, when you said the dick is just a very large clit, I realized you were referring to the external clip, but it reminded me of Maisie Hill's work on this. She reminds us the clit is 7 to 12 centimeters in length. Given the fact that the clitoris is in its entirety larger than any average flaccid penis, I prefer to think of the penis as a small clitoris. So <laughs> I'm calling to propose we refer to dicks as small clits going forward. <laughs> Hi, Dan and Savage Lovecast team. I'm calling in response to the caller that is asking uh, why women achieve orgasm in a different time and blah, blah, blah. So I think something that's not mentioned often enough is that how soon and how much I will come also depends on how hot things are in the bedroom. Like, are we connecting? Am I lusting all over you? Are we having a good interaction? Do we know each other? Are we just like really clicking sexually and talking dirty to each other in exactly the way that would get me there? And then the mechanics are important, but that's like, if the sex was just blah and I'm tired and I had a burrito two hours ago, there's no amount of clitoral stimulation that may overcome that possibly. So don't, don't forget that the clitoris is also connected to your biggest organ, to your brain and to your emotions and feelings and all that. And that, place parts every time you fuck. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet for Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 3, what are you waiting for? You know you want to watch some of the sexiest, kinkiest, dirtiest, and funniest short films from the first 16 years of the Hump Film Festival. Go to humpfilmfest.com right now to get your tickets. 
And this Thursday, May 6th at noon Pacific Standard Time, I'll be hosting our first virtual lunchtime get-together for Magnum subscribers. We're calling it Sack Lunch because, of course, we are. It's a live video hangout, again, exclusively for Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers. We'll talk about this week's Savage Lovecast and whatever else you guys want to talk about. Subscribe to the Magnum version of the show now at savagelovecast.com, and we will send you the link to the show before noon on Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Anna Sale on Twitter at Anna Sale. And be sure to pick up a copy of Anna Sale's new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, which is out now. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 